very, very rewarding, not only to know that it, that, uh, that baby saved, uh, you know, his life, but that he actually himself managed to turn his life completely around after that. Hi, and welcome to the podcast Making an Impact. This is the podcast where all aspects of working in the global impact sector are discussed. My name is Helen Rask, and I will be the host in this podcast. In this episode, we will meet Annika Sandlund, who is the Chief of Interagency and Coordination Unit at UNHCR in Geneva. Annika will let us know how her work has helped the lives of refugees, what it's like to work with the humanitarian organization, and why she got into that field in the first place. So, let's get started. Today I'm very happy and honored to have Annika Sandlund, who is the Chief of Interagency and Coordination Unit at United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in Geneva. Annika, welcome to the podcast, Making an Impact. Thank you very much for having you on the show. You're welcome. Uh, to start, maybe you could explain a bit, what is UNHCR doing? So UNHCR is the UN Refugee Agency. It was created after the Second World War on a shoestring budget of 300,000 uh, to help states solve uh, refugee issues. Uh, as an organization, we strive to ensure that everyone has the right to seek asylum and find safe refuge in another state uh, with the option to eventually return home, to integrate uh, or to settle to a third country. Uh, we were known for our emergency response, so during the time of displacement, we provide uh, emergency assistance in the form of clean water, sanitation, healthcare, shelter, etc., to refugees, 86% of whom, of course, are in, in countries that are not uh, very uh, well developed. We over the time, we've also taken on responsibilities for stateless populations and for internally displaced populations, particularly in three fields, which is protection, shelter and camp management. So that assistance we provide together with other uh, UN agencies and NGOs. And uh, you as a chief of the interagency and coordination unit, what, uh, what does that entail? What are your responsibilities? So I'm the, the head of a small team working at UNHCR headquarters in Geneva who try to partner with different agencies such as the World Food Programme, uh, UNICEF, uh, INGOs, N NGOs, uh, to look at how we can do better together, how we can help more people and how can we can work more effectively through different types of partnerships. And concretely, could you give an example? What, what, uh, what are you actually doing? So very concretely, we're responsible for assigning a memorandum of understandings with different agencies. So for example, the most famous one uh, from the part of UNHR is probably the one we have with World Food Programme, which is very simple but very effective. And it basically says that in times of displacement, if there's more than 5,000 refugees, uh, in any place, and if they are in need of food assistance, then WFP will provide 
uh, that basic food assistance to those refugees. Uh, and for us, it's very good to have these kinds of partnerships that are predictable and that are signed off on the highest level of, of the organization because it means that if there's a sudden emergency, everybody sort of knows what their role is, what they're expected to do, and agencies can fundraise uh, jointly or individually, but there's not the aim is to have uh, no chaos sort of in the response, but a, a predictable and strong response that involves many, many partners. So, for example, in the Bangladesh emergency, where I uh, just returned from, we have over 200 agencies, uh, including, of course, local government, civil society organizations, who are all working on helping the Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh. So, obviously, there needs to be coordination for that to make sure that those most vulnerable get the assistance needed and to also ensure that there's no overlap and the, the same family doesn't get five blankets and, and another family none, for example. And how does the coordination uh, begin? I mean, how, who, who knows what to do what? So, of course, the UN system is, is quite well oiled, so we all have areas of responsibility. So if we UNHR, it is refugees, uh, primarily, also, of course, IDPs. Uh, and we've all agreed on certain modalities and who does what on the global level. But, of course, every context is different. So there's also a need for coordination at the at the field level and to, to better understand exactly who does what on the basis of a, a needs assessment, which is always done in all major emergencies. And what is your educational background and how has that helped you in your professional life working with the UN? So originally I'm a journalist. I worked as a journalist in the Finnish National Broadcasting Company uh, for many years. And I, as a journalist, uh, I went to the Balkans um, to report from the wars at the Balkans. And I was uh, quite disillusioned. Uh, I was relatively young uh, and I had this idea that the world would be a better place if people just knew and understood what the problems were and if they agreed sort of on, on how to see the world then everybody would also agree on how to solve problems such as wars. Uh, but what I realized uh, along with many journalists that was that while we felt that we were reporting very accurately on what was happening and we clearly felt that there were, was an aggressor and there were victims. When, we, when I came back to Finland, uh, where I'm from, uh, I, I visited schools and, and others and they said, oh, but we don't, we don't even listen to what you're telling us. Uh, we don't look at the news because everybody's equal and it's all a mess and uh, we don't understand what's going on. So I felt very disillusioned and I felt that that was not what I wanted to do with my life. So I took another degree in international law uh, and I was very impressed by a few of the agencies working uh, on the Balkans. Uh, so I very actively tried to sort of start working with them and I started first with an NGO and then later I worked with WFP. I also worked for a brief time with ECHO, uh, who at that time was a very different uh, agency very actively involved in humanitarian emergency relief uh, on the ground uh, and then eventually I came to UNHCR. How did you get your first job in this field? I volunteered so I was a volunteer uh, for the International Rescue Committee uh, writing grants. Obviously my journalistic background did help because I knew how to write compelling stories 
to ask for money. Uh, and then I was very eager to just go out to the field and be of assistance in any way I could. So that was my, my first job, was basically just volunteering for an agency. How is it to work with humanitarian organizations? It's really, really fascinating and you do feel that you are making a difference. Um, I think as a young person, it's the most fantastic job you can ever have. Uh, of course, it's also hard. But you, you get to experience a lot of things. You, If you're lucky and you're based in the field and you're with the right set of people, you get to innovate and to try different solutions uh, to see what would work. Uh, and you have this fantastic experience of uh, different cultures, different people. It's very multi-ethnical. It's very multilingual. You learn a lot. Uh, as you grow older, there are challenges that come along. So I always thought that I would always want to be in the field and never be in headquarters. Uh, but now I do have three children and they're a bit tired about of sort of uprooting themselves every two to three years to go to another situation that may not be in the most developed country. Usually it's not in the most developed country uh, where there might be restrictions in, on them in terms of security so they can't uh, walk by themselves or cycle by themselves because there's uh, dangers involved in that, uh, and where they don't get to keep their friends that they have made. So the rotation is uh, a challenge for most humanitarian workers. Uh, isolation is a challenge when you're working in the field. You're often very remote, so UNHCR has over 16,000 staff, um, but 90% of them are, are based in the field, in field locations. And that usually for UNHR, it doesn't even mean a capital city. It means a border city, a smaller border town uh, between two warring uh, countries, one that is slightly safer and then the other, which is where we are. Uh, so it, it's, uh, it has its pros and its cons, I guess, like, uh, like any other job. You were talking a bit about the rotation and uh, you have non-family duty stations and so forth. How do you cope with the family? So I've been very lucky, uh, mainly I think because I have a, a great husband who is, uh, like me, fine with moving uh, around and doesn't uh, get too stressed uh, about challenges with water or electricity or the fact that, you know, it takes you nine hours to upload a photo on Facebook uh, because the internet connection just is not working in the particular place you are. Uh, so I've been very lucky that I have a support from a, a partner who, who sort of, like me, thinks that the, the joy of, of experiencing new and different cultures overrides the inconveniences of the sort of everyday life that we have in these places. Um, so, and my, my children, who are now 14, 12 and 10, have also been very okay with moving. I think the next move will be very challenging because uh, moving with small children is relatively easy because the world for very small children is relatively small. Uh, but as my children become teenagers, I can foresee that the moves will be more and more difficult as we, as we go along. What is the most rewarding about your job, you would say? The, the feeling of making an impact and being able to change 
things in, in lives and especially for very vulnerable people. Uh, and this is both on the micro and the macro level. So, for example, one of the most rewarding policy decisions that I was involved in was in, in Sri Lanka, where we had a big population of stateless people. So stateless people don't have a nationality, and they, these were so-called upcountry Tamils. So they had been taken more or less as slaves by the Brits uh, in the time and imported from India to Sri Lanka, uh, where they worked on the tea and coffee plantations. And through hundreds of years, they didn't have the right to go to school or to have a bank account. Of course, they had no passport, so they couldn't travel anywhere. They were registered on, on big, uh, old-fashioned logbooks. The births and deaths were registered by the tea plantation and coffee plantation owners, but they, they, they didn't exist uh, as citizens. And, of course, that meant that they couldn't go to university, they couldn't get jobs outside of this um, plantation area. So it was a very absurd situation, and this was 2003, 2004. So, you know, in modern-day times... And together with the workers' union, we managed to convince the parliament to pass a law that allowed these people to apply for citizenship under a very short period of time. Uh, and over 200,000 families applied for citizenship. And it was uh, truly amazing to, to see them uh, sign the citizenship applications that we collected. Uh, and it was all very fast-moving, and we were always afraid that uh, somebody would stop us and that there would be a judicial challenge, which uh, in the end there was. Um, but that was overcome. Uh, and I think that sort of the fact that all these uh, families are now able to have a normal life, uh, that's sort of fantastically rewarding to know that I was part of that effort. And we were only very few, maybe 10 people uh, who were working on this in, in Sri Lanka, and yet it sort of in, it ended up impacting over a million people. That was in Sri Lanka. Where else have you been with UNHCR? So with UNHCR, I worked in Iraq. I worked in Sri Lanka, worked in Ethiopia, in Uganda, in West Africa, in Bangladesh, and now I'm working here at headquarters. And I even managed to, during my time working with UNHR, to write about my experiences in a book about Ethiopia, because I found that country so incredibly fascinating. Why? Partly, I think, because it's it really considers itself apart from the other African countries. It's one of the few countries who've never been colonized, uh, with a very proud history, and it's incredibly complex with lots of languages, lots of religions, uh, lots of different tribes who are still very attached to their sort of tribal uh, identities. Uh, and in this midst, you have uh, a big humanitarian apparatus, I would say, um, predating sort of from the live aid times with very strong NGOs, such as Save the Children, who year after year try to make life a little bit better. And it's also a country whose economy is growing phenomenally. Uh, so there's a lot of um, opportunities for, for a better tomorrow in Ethiopia. What would you say is the most challenging about your job? I think everyone, well, not everyone maybe, but 
a lot of people who join organizations like UNHCR join it to be able to make a concrete change on the ground in people's lives. And quite a few of us end up in positions that are more policy-oriented uh, or where we're spending a lot of time talking to each other uh, as opposed to talking to refugees or those internally displaced. And I think for for me, that's the, it's a challenge. Um, just the internal coordination that comes from being part of the UN and from trying to move such a archaic organization sort of forward uh, towards meaningful change and meaningful impact. Could you give a concrete example of such a challenge? So in Turkey, I was working uh, with UNHCR, with the Syria refugee response. And one of the things we wanted to make sure was that the refugee children could go to school, uh, because that's actually part of the Turkey constitution, uh, that all children uh, have the right to primary education. It's, of course, also part of the Convention of the Rights of the Child. Um, so from the beginning of the crisis, we were um, advocating for this with the authorities. Um, but there were many challenges. One was the, the Syrian refugees themselves uh, said that they didn't want to the children to go to Turkish schools because they believed that the refugee uh, conflict was would be over very soon and that they could return home. Uh, so they wanted to continue the education in Arabic and not in Turkish. Uh, that was one challenge. We also had some other um, partners who wanted to help immediately and set up lots of uh, schools. Other partners who wanted the help to be immediate and set up refugee schools in the camps. And uh, while these schools were good, they didn't follow the Turkish curriculum, and of course the children didn't learn Turkish. Uh, and uh, I've worked with many agencies to try and reverse this and somehow and, and get the children into school, uh, but I was unsuccessful. And every day when I went to work, there was this little 10-year-old Syrian boy who was selling matchsticks at the on our street and they had done sort of a, a specific box surrounding those matches that they were selling uh, for one Turkish lira, which is nothing. And every time I saw this boy, I thought, you know, he's uh, proof that we were unsuccessful. What was your best day at work then? Uh, again, I can use maybe the Turkey example. Um, one of my best days when was when I was engaged for over two hours with a very young uh, Afghan boy who wanted to commit suicide because he was very frustrated about the refugee life. Uh, he was angry because uh, he felt we weren't, we as UNHR were not doing enough uh, to help him. And he really, really wanted to move with his family to the US because he thought that that would be sort of a promised land where he could do all kinds of things that he wasn't allowed to do in Turkey. Uh, so he was threat He was on the top of a 16-floor building and threatening to throw himself down. And I still remember when we were locked inside my office because I had to close the door uh, and leave everything else aside. And I managed to call a, a psychiatrist to the to the office. And we were there, a national staff member in contact with the police who had been called to this 
building and they were standing outside, sort of below him. Uh, and he was, of course, saying that he would jump if they entered the building. The psychiatrist who was on the phone to his parents trying to find ways to convince him to come down and myself who was on the phone with this boy trying to tell him to to come down and that things would be okay. Uh, and uh, after two hours we managed to, to convince him and he returned down um, peacefully and of course his parents were then by that time waiting for him. And uh, a couple of years later he actually managed to complete high school with the the best possible uh, maths grade so he was mentioned in all the newspapers as uh, as an example to 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 others so that was uh, very very rewarding not only to know that it, that uh, that day we saved uh, you know his life but that he actually himself managed to turn his life completely around after that what is the most needed skill in your field of expertise you would say So my actual area of expertise is protection, uh, which is sort of the legal legal background that I have. Um, but what, I think sorry, what does protection mean? So protection is where you really look at uh, how can you achieve the rights of people. So, for example, like I mentioned, the right to go to school, um, but also protection for for us is is looking at the refugee convention that has lots of Um, guidance to states that have signed up to this and what they should do. So they should give education to refugees on par with nationals, healthcare on par with nationals, etc. And as a protection officer, you're very much there to to try and help and assist the states to reach uh, those uh, those milestones that they should reach, so that uh, refugees have the rights to which they are entitled. Uh, it also means that you try to make sure that. Uh, every action that anyone takes, that it does no harm, that you look at age and gender and, uh, and make sure that children are catered for with their specific needs, that, that there is gender equality in the response, that women have a voice, uh, and that, that the beneficiaries themselves are part of the decision-making process about programs that, that we are implementing for them. What is your recommendations uh, to those who want to have a similar career path as yourself? My main recommendation, I think, is to not give up and to try different avenues to get in, so to say, to to humanitarian work. Uh, my second recommendation would be to always remember that you're you're there because you want to help and you want to have an impact and. Everything else actually does come second. Uh, any policy you make has to contribute to the protection or the assistance needs of the the population that, that you're there to to assist. Uh, and I think because in 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 many places humanitarian workers are very powerful. Uh, which sounds ironic when you are a humanitarian worker, but powerful in relation to the beneficiaries. So I think it's always good to remember to to be humble and remember that uh, uh, you know there, but for the grace of God, uh, go your fellow human beings, and you're not above them just because you happen to be in a position where you can help them. That the tables could be turned, and uh, the next day you can be the one who is in need of help. And how would you want? those who are there to help you to to behave and behave accordingly. And for those that may want to 
uh, do a similar career change that you have done. Um, do you have any, any recommendation on how to access such a job? I think from my own lesson learned is that, that um, I really wanted to change very badly. And in my desire to change, I sort of moved 360 degrees and took another degree as uh, in international uh, human rights. And I now realize that maybe I didn't have to be so drastic, that the skills that I had acquired as a journalist could also have helped me uh, achieve the goal of sort of helping people. Um, so I think in every job you have, uh, you acquire skills and the most valued skills in the humanitarian field, I think are really those that where people have lived the skills where you can demonstrate that you know why what you're doing because you've done it uh, or, or you, 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 know, you have a film to show or uh, articles or books that you have written that show that you know what you're talking about. So my recommendation would be to build on what, what you have. Um, we really need every type of expertise uh, within the humanitarian response. And we tend to be a bit insular as well, uh, which is not very good, but where I think sort of people making a career change and coming in a bit later should not underestimate what they learned in their first career. Thank you very much, Annika, for participating in the podcast. Thank you very much for uh, letting me share my experiences. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you found it interesting to learn more about the work of UNHCR. If you want more information or to look for a job with the UN Refugee Agency, please check out our webpage www.impactpool.org. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.